Hi, this is Mark Geis, and I just want to take a minute to explain what I, w- what I want to accomplish with this podcast and uh, tell you maybe a little bit about who I am, how often I plan to do this, all that. First, I want to thank you for clicking and even listening to this first 15 seconds. Uh, my name is, like I said, Mark Geis. Um, I'm 24 years old, just turned 24. Uh, and just kind of a concerned young person. There's a lot of great content out there concerning politics, economics, history, how it all intertwines, trends, where we're going. There's not a ton out there, though, I think, that looks at things from a young person's perspective, from a millennial's perspective, and especially doesn't look at things from a more libertarian lens and a millennial's viewpoint. A lot of the libertarian podcasts, not that it's older people, but, you know, it tends to be more mid-30s and, and older from there, uh, the, the great libertarian content out there. So I want to just share my viewpoints. They may be a little different from what's out there, maybe look coming at things from a slightly different angle. Uh, and I'm hoping to do this really as often as something really piques my interest and as often as I really feel like I have something unique to offer. It's not going to be every weekday. Uh, it's not going to be every day or it's not going to be every other day. It's going. It's not going to be regular like that. Um, maybe one week I could have five. Next week I could have one. But uh, I, I just want to have an outlet to get my viewpoints out there and hopefully enough people appreciate them that uh, it, it makes it worth my time to do. So the re- what really brought me to start this podcast and to want to record this was the whole Brexit uh, controversy, the whole outcome, um, the aftermath, what everybody's been saying in the aftermath. That's really what's brought me to, to record this. I was following it very closely for the last several weeks. It was an extremely interesting, really global phenomenon concerning it was just one country deciding to leave the European Union, that it got so many people over in the United States disengaged. I think it shows how momentous it was. And it's not just about Britain, but it's really about the future of the European Union. And even bigger than that, it's about the future of centralized power. And is the tr- is the long-term trend going to be toward centralization or toward decentralization and toward bringing control back locally? So that was really why this was so important. It really, yeah, everybody's talking about what happened to the markets following Brexit, uh, what are going to be the kind of shorter-term economic ramifications for the Eurozone, for Britain, and even for Japan, the Asian markets, and the United States and our markets here, and all of the currencies involved there. But I think the bigger the bigger thing to talk about is, are we trending toward centralization or toward decentralization? But even more importantly than that, and what I want to talk about most today, and I think this is how we can kind of bring this topic back to what's happening in the United States and really what's happening worldwide. And I think what you're seeing is a rejection of the establishment. And I know that every every politician that comes out, maybe not every politician, but so many of them come out and say, I'm not like everybody else. I'm not part of the establishment. You hear that all the time. So maybe you're saying something's anti-establishment has kind of lost its cachet. But I think here you have a real trend toward people standing up against what the establishment's telling them. And what the establishment is, it's the big media companies, the professional politicians that are part of that are parts of the main political parties, 
and mainstream economists. Those are really the three big classes that I see, but there's really a whole cosmopolitan elite that they, they're all intertwined with each other. Those are the three main classes that I'm going to focus on, the three main categories, I think, that make up the elite or the establishment. But those are the three that I think you're really seeing rejected by the whole Brexit, by, by everything that happened. So we, we, we've also seen this happen here with... Donald Trump's rise, and I think they're similar. They may be, they may be being brought on by different situations in each of the two countries. But at the heart, people have just gone completely against what the establishment's telling them to do. And before I go deeper into this, I want to make it clear that it's not that everything that the establishment believes is bad, or everything that the establishment promotes is bad, and everything that's anti-establishment is good. I want to make sure that that is clear. Like everything that everything that's that's anti-establishment, I'm not going to endorse. I'm not going to believe in, and I don't endorse everything that I'm going to be talking about in this podcast from an anti-establishment side. And I'm not necessarily demonizing everything that's on the establishment side. When it comes to Brexit, I happen to agree with the anti-establishment side. So on this topic, yes. But when it comes more to the United States, I am not a fan of Donald Trump. Um, I'm not trying to get Donald Trump elected. But I think there are two similar trends, and we need to talk about both of them. What I think people are finally waking up to is the mainstream economists. First, I want to talk about the economists. They have been wrong time and time and time again, over and over again. They couldn't see... The, the global financial collapse of 2008 coming. They couldn't see the Great Recession coming. They didn't see the writing on the wall, even though to a lot of people that were outside of the establishment who were laughed out of the room, they could see this coming. They could see what, it, what a dangerous trend it was to have low interest rates for so long and what would happen when people irresponsibly borrowed due to those artificially low rates. People could see that, but it wasn't people in the establishment. It wasn't mainstream economists. And I think that everybody is starting to pick up on that. And what's really fueling this more than ever could have happened in the past is the democratization of information and of media. So what you have now is everybody has a voice now online. Now, it may be slightly harder for for you to get a following, for you to get people to listen to you if you don't have the backing of CNN or of MSNBC or of BBC or you know any of the huge uh, broadcasting companies out there, but it's much easier than it's ever been before. It's much easier now to start up a blog or to start up your own independent website and for you to attract a following and for your voice to be heard. And that really wasn't possible 30 years ago, maybe even 20 years ago. It was much harder to do then than it is now, now that every virtually everybody has access to the internet. You have social media sites, which are free to be on, which so many people are on, and it's so much easier to reach people than it's ever been before for people that aren't part of that accepted mainstream. And what's happened is you've had blogs, social media accounts, all catering now to these niche interests that wouldn't have been covered in the past by mainstream media because they were trying to they were trying to appeal to this meaty medium. So you know maybe say fifty percent of people, if their news could could appeal to them, they didn't necessarily care about the other fifty percent of people. It was much better to cater to them and not offend them than to try to get this other five or ten percent in, but then maybe alienate twenty five percent of that middle. 
So now what you have is everybody catering to niches. And you still have these big media sites that are trying to cater to that meaty middle. You still have the CNNs and the MSNBCs, though they have changed as a result of, of this kind of niche seeking, which I guess I've never heard that terminology before. But um, what has happened is people do not need the establishment to get their information any longer. You can now go the entire day without having to listen to what CNN's opinion is on an issue or what Barack Obama's opinion is on an issue. You can go to your favorite blog, your favorite opinion person, your favorite news site, and you can get an opinion that caters to your interests, to your personal interests, and maybe to your biases as well. And we can argue whether that's a good or a bad thing. Um, I tend to think individualization is a good thing. So I think this has been a good thing. I think it's enabled people to be much more informed than they were in the past. And it's enabled a lot more people to not feel like they're alienated any longer. You know, I wasn't alive 30 years ago when it would have been impossible for this to happen, when the internet wasn't a widespread phenomenon, when you wouldn't have a blog that you could go to where you felt like somebody with a similar opinion to you coming at things from a similar viewpoint as you could attack a certain issue that's going on, uh, something that's going on, um, a big event. You didn't have that 30 years ago. And I, I can only imagine how alienated people must have felt. And it's either now I've got to accept the, I've got to accept the CNN account of what's going on or the CBS account of, uh, of what's going on on the planet, or I'm just not going to care about politics anymore. And I'm just going to, I'm just going to be apathetic. So I think the internet has really been the driving force to this happening because information now is easier to get than ever before and it's now more catered to us individually than it's ever been before. And the establishment is freaking out about this because they would love for the status quo to stick around. They would love for public opinion to first need to be vetted by the executives at CNN or the executives at Fox News or MSNBC or the BBC or any of those big media companies because they're part of the establishment and they know that if I hold these establishment views, I'm going to be the ones out there drawing the big viewerships. But now you're seeing something like Drudge Report coming about where it started by a guy basically in his basement and now he holds just as much sway as any of those big, uh, those big media companies. That never could have happened without the internet. And all of these these niches, which I think are becoming more and more extreme, and they're becoming more extreme almost so fast that we that we can't realize, that we almost can't comprehend how fast it's happening. But I, I've looked at uh, the alt-right and how they've emerged throughout this campaign, how big of a social media force they have become. And, you know, all the power to them, because they've swayed a lot of people's opinions. They've gotten in the heads of establishment Republicans They've swayed a lot of Republicans that may have been on the fence to come over to their side, and they've been a huge part of Donald Trump's success. Now, would the alt-right have been possible without the democratization of media? I don't think so. Would, without the internet, without Reddit, without Twitter, would they have ever come about? I, I don't think, maybe in, in small pockets around the country, but they wouldn't have had an outlet to express their views. And some people are going to say, now that I'm saying that, well, that means that this democratization of media is a bad thing. Overall, it's a bad thing because something like the alt-right can come about. And you may think the alt-right is the most evil thing in the world. 
and that's your right to believe whatever you want. I think on net it's positive because I think that the establishment is even more dangerous and what the establishment has been forcing down our throats for decades upon decades is much more dangerous than whatever any niche uh, whatever niche group of people can have an opinion on a particular issue. I think the taking down of the establishment is much more important than what the other consequences are going to be of this democratization of media. What happened in Britain, and you've, you've seen the mainstream and all of these people that I was talking about, primarily the mainstream media pundits, professional politicians, were part of the kind of mainstream political movements and mainstream economists have freaked out. They freaked out leading up to it. Now that it's happened, if if I was an alien coming down from another planet, I would think that this is one of the biggest events in human history. I would think this is bigger than World War II. It's bigger than the atomic bombs being dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The way that people are framing this, like this is the biggest financial catastrophe that we've ever seen. It is such overkill, and it is the establishment that's forcing that opinion down our throats. Now, it obviously shows how much sway they still have, that they're still able to get that opinion out there. and People like like me and you are hearing it as well, even if you maybe try to avoid what the mainstream opinion is on a particular issue. But we're hearing it. But the way that they have just castigated the pro-Lee forces as racist xenophobes, like that was the major part of that campaign like that was the central core of that campaign and that 52 percent of people in britain or 52 percent of people that came out and voted on this referendum only did so because of this racist rhetoric it's ridiculous but that is the opinion they're forcing down our throats as these uneducated slobs that can barely get themselves dressed in the morning that don't deserve to vote and that's why only us urban elites should be allowed to vote and the rest of the the rest of the slobbish people shouldn't be allowed to because they obviously don't know what they're doing how could any sane person possibly vote to remain or to leave the European Union i don't know a single person that voted to 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 uh, leave the European Union that's what these people are saying and it just shows they are so far removed from reality and it's all it's doing all that this kind of castigation is doing is it is taking people that maybe would be sympathetic to what the elites are saying and it's pushing them to the other side it's pushing them to the donald trump's of the world it's pushing them maybe to xenophobic uh rhetoric or to xenophobic leaders because all that they see is i don't want to be a part of that establishment if that establishment is going to just denigrate regular people for voicing their opinion in a referendum then I don't want to be a part of the establishment. I'm going to just be against them, no matter who that other party is, no matter who that other person is, I'm going to follow them now. I'm not going to follow the establishment candidate or the establishment ideals. And I really can't blame them for doing that because it is, it's abhorrent what they're, what they're saying after this. They're saying, we need a, a second referendum now, to get the real, the voices of the of the true voters. They're pushing all these stories about how people are regretting their vote because they didn't actually think that, that leave was going to win. I, they're throwing everything they can at us to try to 
tr- basically what they they like democracy when the results are what they want them to be and they will tout democracy to no end as long as the results are what they want but once the results come back and they're not what they want and they're they're giving the establishment a big fu now all of a sudden they blast democracy say oh the regular person shouldn't have a vote what the regular people say shouldn't matter it should be us educated urban elites that decide really what happens in this country this country being being great britain being the united kingdom um it's it has been pretty fascinating to watch and i think for a long time this has kind of been under wraps and they've said they've said it but not really in clear language so they've kind of hinted at really what their opinions are on the average person and the average person's opinions but this and with twitter now once you tweet something out there it's out there forever people are screenshotting it they're saving it and it's out there for eternity and you are seeing what people really think what these elites really think about the average person and the same thing that that just happened in britain is happening here too the urban elites have the same opinion of, of rural america of you know of flyover country they have the same opinions obviously we haven't had quite the event that would trigger this kind of uh direct insult toward rural america by urban america but if donald trump is elected i guarantee you we're going to be seeing these same things and fundamentally britain what you're seeing is there's kind of two different two different groups of people there and pretty well divided by leave and remain i wouldn't say it's a perfect division or anything but it's that same division that i was just talking about it's kind of the the urban elite where uh you know they they tend to hold more leftist views and the rural uh common people and they may hold more right-wing views on the average of course everybody isn't like that and it's not a clear-cut division between the two but you're, I think that those trends are getting stronger and stronger. I just read a pretty good book. Uh, it was it was pretty good. Uh, the The Big Sort by Bill Bishop, and he wrote it, I believe, right after the 2008 election when Obama was elected. And his thesis is, and it's a strong thesis, pretty well supported, that we're sorting into more and more like-minded communities. And so. He looks exclusively at the United States, but I can only imagine the same thing is happening in other countries. And with what just happened in Britain, I have to imagine the same thing is happening there. But what's happening as a result of that is we are much less likely to encounter opposing views, and we are much more likely to talk into an echo chamber. So basically, our views are constantly reinforced back at us and strengthened and made more extreme. And also an important part of it is group politics or kind of Uh, kind of group uh, basically when a group is together and you take the average of all their opinions but then you ask them to come up with a consensus so you get them all together after taking their individual opinions basically the consensus is going to be more extreme than the average of their individual views so you have all those things kind of working together and it makes it so we're less able to see the other side and less willing to compromise when we do get together with other people from the other side whether it's politically politically is was his main focus but really on on any issue this is happening and i think it's 
it's dangerous. And I think that the urban elite, you're seeing it more strongly from them. I, it happens also from the other direction where I, I'm saying rural America is kind of a kind of a catch-all term for the other side, for the non-urban elites. But we are starting to castigate all of them as being out of touch with reality, just as they're doing the same to us. So I'm not saying this is just a one-way street where it's only the urban elites doing it to everybody else. But the urban elites, I think, do hold a lot more power and a lot more influence still, even though that's kind of waning. And that's why it's more important, I think, what their viewpoints are of the rest of the populace. And why I think it's more dangerous when they think that everybody else's opinions don't matter or they're uneducated or, you know, whatever whatever euphemism they come up for basically thinking that everybody else are a bunch of slobs that can barely get themselves dressed in the morning before they go to work. Um, so I think this is all coming together and we're starting to see a, a global change here. And I think it's only going to get worse or better depending on which angle you're coming at this from. Um, but you're only going to see the establishment have less and less power. You're only going to see social media have more power in these campaigns. You're only going to see individual people hold more power. Now, that may or may not be that important, to be honest, as long as power stays centralized. And a lot of what these niche groups coming together are doing is coming together and calling for more centralization. And you saw this a lot. I, I, I know I'm being kind of America-centric, but with the Bernie Sanders campaign, what they're calling for is more and more centralization, more and more government power with the federal authorities in the United States. This is the opposite of the trend that that we were seeing in, in Britain, where they're moving away from centralization. They want power closer to home. They don't want power to be held in Brussels away from them. But what happened with the Bernie Sanders campaign and a lot of young people got involved. Social media was a huge part of it because, you know, young people make up such a significant portion of the users on social media, and that's really how you can get young people mobilized best. But, so I want to make sure that I, that I make clear that I don't know whether the long-term trend is towards centralization or decentralization, because this, this could really move in either direction. What I hope is that as everything becomes more individualized. And we're seeing this already with music. You can talk about uh, Pandora or Spotify or any of these music services where you can have the exact genre of music that you want delivered straight to you through these services. Or you can order just the songs you want through iTunes or through Amazon Music or through whatever other products are out there. I'm sure there are a lot more that I'm not even aware of. Um, you're seeing it with uh, with products. You, you no longer have to go to a one-size-fits-all store to buy your products. You can buy everything online if you want. And whether you want to do it on Amazon where they have seemingly everything or you can shop at a bunch of different niche sites that cater to the niches that you want if you have specific tastes that maybe you can't find on Amazon or sites like that. But we're seeing this in everything in our lives where everything is catered to us more and more on an individual basis because that's what the Internet's bringing to us. And that's what we demand. This isn't the 50s anymore where your only options were whatever was in the Sears Roebuck uh, catalog. It's no longer like that. So what I'm hoping is that happens at the governmental level, happens in politics, where we demand more power individually. 
And the way that we hold the most power as individuals in the political process is for power to be held closer to home. So in Europe, it might be taking down the EU, and now we want power in our own federal governments. In the United States, it may be stripping the federal government of a lot of the powers that it's that it's basically created for itself and taken from the states and bring it back to the states, bring it back to the cities and the counties and the towns, bring it back as locally as possible. And I think that makes sense when you look at the trends and everything else. I don't see why politics necessarily should be different from how we buy products or how we consume music or how we consume movies or TV shows or you know really anything that we do now is becoming so much more individualized. Now you have to cater to niches if you want to survive. You can't try to be everything to everyone and survive. The world isn't like that anymore. The world is not how it was 50 years ago. This is an individualized world and I think that once people start to make that connection, how much better that's made our lives, how much better it's made my life to be able to go out and buy specifically what I want on the internet rather than just have to buy whatever's available in my local store. That makes my life so much better. No longer do I just have to listen to whatever's on the radio or I, I really only can buy whatever's available from my local record store, my local music store, or you know just rent the movies that my local store has. I can find anything I want online and buy it and consume it. And that's made my life considerably better. I'm sure it's made everybody's lives immeasurably better. It's, it's kind of hard to measure how much that's improved our standards of living. It's something that, look, just looking at average incomes, really can't, it, you can't take that into account. And I don't think, I don't know if there's any way to do it. I would love to see if anybody's tried to, because I think it'd be a really interesting study. But I don't know if it's, if it's possible to even put a value on that. But we're seeing that in every aspect of our lives. And I think we're going to start seeing that politically. Though, you know, when I, when I talk to people my age, and obviously there are, there are a lot of people that lean toward less government, less government intervention in their lives that are my age, but the, the predominant trend is toward centralizing power, is toward um, more leftist types of views. If you talk to a majority of people, that's going to be how it is. And really, I think I have a pretty good cross-section of people. You know, I've, I have a lot of interaction with college-educated people and, uh, you know, people with graduate degrees, but then also people that didn't go to college. Um, I think I've got a pretty good cross-section of people out there, and still the majority of, of them from any, any of those demographics is toward more leftist views. And maybe they're going to wake up and see decentralization has made my life so great in all these other ways the government should be the same way how i'm governed should be the same way and i think it's very possible that we that we do that but i think it's going to take a lot of de-brainwashing or <laughs> whatever you want to call it you have to reverse a lot of brainwashing that has happened and a lot of a lot of what we were told in school simply isn't the truth or is misleading and it's very hard once you're kind of set in those ways, and by the time you get into your into your twenties, it's it, it's pretty hard to change. I think you know maybe throughout your teenage years it's easier. Your early twenties, I know a lot of people that change throughout their twenties, but as you get older and older, it's very difficult to change to just to change how you think. That's why it'd be great if 
and I've heard a couple stories of, of people trying to trying to create more libertarian leaning products for people to educate their children. And I, Tom Woods has done a great job with this. He had somebody on a show, I forget what his name was, but somebody that was making children's books from a libertarian perspective and trying to really bring these issues down to something that's really digestible for, for uh, young children. That kind of stuff is great because it's much easier to teach your child the facts and to teach them to think for themselves and not have them be kind of brainwashed into thinking a particular way. It's much easier to do that the earlier you start. So I'm, I don't really know how this is going to all pan out, and it's going to be very interesting to watch. I, I really do hope, I know I'm being kind of optimistic, I think, that people do look at their lives with kind of a unifying, they see things that work in one part of my life hopefully will work in another part of my life. And as we get more and more individual control of how we live our lives, in terms of, like I've said a bunch of times, consuming media and uh, music and TV shows and, you know, finding services, anything. Um, as we get more and more individual power there, they should see getting more individual power politically should have a similar improvement on my standard of living. So that's kind of where I'm coming at this from. What are the long-term trends globally from this? I haven't really gotten into the immediate financial effects. Uh, I did say earlier that basically the mainstream was talking all these doom and gloom scenarios. There was one one guy that I got into a back and forth a little bit on Twitter, um, Umer Hake, I think is his name, and he, he may have been the worst that I saw in terms of just pumping these doom and gloom scenarios, like this was the end of the world. And I, I, I said something back to him in one, in one of the tweets that I sent him, just said, how did Britain possibly survive before it joined the EU? How was Britain a world power before they joined the EU? If the EU is so necessary to a country being able to thrive, how was Britain a world power for so long? How? It, it's like they can't look past, look back in time before a time when the EU existed. And I think that they, I think that the elitists, I think they have a similar, they don't want to look at things from a historical perspective and they want to ignore what happened 200 years ago or I mean even shorter you know even 100 years ago even 50 years ago they don't want to look back that long ago because history tends to lend itself well to looking at things now from a libertarian perspective and I think that we have history on our side and when you really get down into an argument if you look at any argument, you can look at the gun control argument and how how the leftists want to paint it as guns are so much different now. So the Second Amendment really was written in a different time, so we we don't need it anymore. Or it needs to be changed. It's it doesn't make sense now because guns are so different. That's how they want to frame that argument. You know, despite if you look back at what our founding fathers said, that that was a fundamental right because of an oppressive government. And so if you if you don't have access to the same guns that the government has, that's a fundamental mismatch between you and the government. It makes it that much more difficult for you to protect yourself from an oppressor like the British were to our forefathers. I don't want to get into that, but that's how they frame that argument. You know, they don't want to 
they kind of want to look back at the New Deal, but they only want to cherry pick the the kind of the the rosy picture of FDR and and the New Deal and what happened in the Great Depression. They don't want to go back and actually talk about details. They'll say it's a different world now. They'll say the same things that they say about the gun control argument. And so they don't want to look back at history because it's not on their side. And the more that we have it on our side, and the more I think that, that people start to realize that history does repeat itself. And even though there's new even though new technology comes about, we change in our opinions, the kind of the broad things that happen throughout history happen time and time again. And they're going to happen now. You know, we're not immune. We're not smarter than the people were than people were before us. Technology doesn't save us from these things that are going to happen. History repeats itself. And so I think the more that we have history on our side, the more well-versed we are in history, and the more that we continue to look at history and frame everything from a historical perspective, I think the better off that we are going to be when debating our enemies, which is <laughs> pretty much everybody on both sides. It, it, it seems that way at least. But I, the enemy I'm talking about in this episode at least is the elite. And I think they are most dangerous right now. They're the ones that want to see power remain centralized. They would love to see power remain centralized in media or in music or in movies. They would love to see that still centralized, but they've lost all those battles. So they're trying to battle now on the political stage and hope to keep their political interests because they've lost so many other, so many other battles because... They can't compete with the internet and with individualization and decentralization. And I think that's going to happen politically, but it's not going to be pretty because that's the source of far more money, far more money than you would get in a particular industry, in the music industry. Politics such a bigger game in terms of the money at stake and the power at stake and the ability to have influence over other people's lives. So it's going to be very interesting to see what happens. And I think I don't even want to get into necessarily what the immediate financial outcomes are going to be. I will say this, that Janet Yellen is not going to raise rates until December 2016 at the earliest. And I was saying this months ago, obviously I don't have a podcast, so I can't go back and <laughs> I can't verify that. But now you'll have me on the record from, from here on forward. But there's no way that she can, and I, I said this, I kind of debated my uncle back and forth on this. He's He looks at things from a pretty libertarian perspective, too, but I think he was more hawkish on the Fed and on what the Fed was going to do, and we had made a little bet on if they were going to raise rates in June. This was, of course, this was before the jobs report, so I betted against it. It was just a small little friendly wager. Uh, and then obviously when that jobs report came out, you knew there was no chance. But then people were still kind of optimistic about, oh, maybe, maybe July they're going to raise rates not going to happen. And I can't see them doing it before the election because Janet Yellen has every incentive for Hillary Clinton to win in November. And if they raise rates, you saw what happened when they raised rates by 25 basis points. It wasn't even 25 basis points either because they raised the Fed funds rate target from 0 to 25 basis points to 25 to 50 basis points. So it could have been as little as if they were on the high end of that target to now they're on the low end of that target. It could have been as little as, you know, a 10 basis points raise, but that's more semantics. But we had one of the we had the worst start to the year in the stock market's history. And what's going to happen if they do that again? 
Things haven't gotten more stable. If anything, they've gotten more unstable. So there's no way they're going to raise rates. They can't. If it, and it's all self-interest. In in the long run, raising rates would be the right thing. Raising rates significantly, significantly, or just letting rates rise up to their market, to their market rate, their free market rate would be ideal. But they're not going to let that happen. They still want to have jobs. They want Hillary Clinton to come in. She would likely retain Janet Yellen. I don't know who else she would possibly get, but Donald Trump, if he's elected, there is no way that he's going to retain Janet Yellen. He's going to bring in somebody else from the outside. I don't know who it would be, but it's not going to be her. And really, Hillary Clinton, if you're voting for Hillary Clinton, you're basically saying that I I think Barack Obama did an adequate job. There are, there are some people voting for her that are just voting for her because they don't want Donald Trump in the White House. They would, you know... They'd vote for anybody as long as it wasn't Donald Trump. But a lot, her base, at least, is voting for her because they think, you know, Barack Obama maybe he's made some mistakes, but he's done a pretty good job. And I want that to continue. I think I'm better off now than I was eight years ago. That's what they're voting for. And so Janet Yellen is in the same spot. She's part, though they're independent, she's really part of the Obama administration. She's an Obama appointee. Clinton would retain her, I would think. I, I really can't see it going another direction. So that's the biggest ramification right now in terms of uh, looking at things from the Fed perspective, which I do want to talk about that quite a bit on this podcast because I think it's pretty interesting. But I don't want to get too deep into the financial financial implications of, of what happened. I think it's been overblown. I think especially because Brexit, if it even if they even do actually leave the EU, if the Parliament doesn't figure out some kind of way to get around this vote, it's not going to be for another two and a half, three years down the line. And I don't know how I don't know how markets can react that sharply in one day to something that's going to happen three years down the line. And it isn't even a certainty to happen three years down the line. And I'm sure they're pricing in now the potential exits of other countries because um, I know. Uh, in France, there's been a call for an, for a referendum, or they want a referendum. They haven't obviously established they're going to have a referendum. And kind of the the, the Nigel Farages of, of other countries are trying to push this in, in their countries as well. Uh, so I'm sure the markets are pricing that in, but that being priced in shouldn't represent, you know, in an 8 to 9% drop in the, in the pound or... The, the Dow ended up being down, I think, 3%, something like that. And um, the FTSE ended up being down about the same. It's the, the big British exchange. Um, I don't, you know, I don't see it. And I think the one important thing to take away is that the other European markets dropped more than the UK did, at least the, the stock markets did. So that goes to show me that the EU needed Britain more than Britain needed the EU. But I think th- this is all going to kind of stabilize. It's going to level off. This isn't going to be, you know, we're not going to see the kind of drops next week that I've seen thrown around out there. I, I can't see that happening. I think people are going to come to their senses and things are going to level off. And they started to level off on Friday. They already started to do that. They came far off the lows and I think you're going to see things level off. Maybe not quite where they were early last week when Remain looked like a certainty, but all this doom and gloom talking about this like it's the 87 crash or something, I don't, I don't get it. 
and I don't see it happening. I think it's just people mad that they that whatever they wanted didn't happen, and now they want to scare people. I think that's all that's happening. But hopefully, uh, hopefully I can get another one of these out early next week. I really thank you for listening to the inaugural podcast here, and I really want to keep this going. It's just kind of a thing for me to do in my spare time when something really gets me going. I don't have a lot of people to talk to about these kind of things, a lot of, at least a lot of people in person. So it's good to, to verbalize these things and to kind of get them down and to hash them out over something like this. And I would love to, if there's anybody out there that would like to have a back and forth, I'd love to be a guest host or, you know, be a guest or, you know, maybe even be a, a co-host. I would love that because it's much easier to converse with somebody else, maybe somebody else that you have slight disagreements every now and again. That would be great. And I would love that. I think it's better for the listeners than to have one person just ranting and going on and on. Uh, but like I said, I thank you and have a great rest of your weekend. Thank you.